you have been listening along this summer, you know that I've been speaking with educators who have put a lot of time and thought into what it might take for more of us to be able to engage in the, quote, difficult conversations that will make our schools better places for all students. On today, I have Jennifer Abrams. You may know Jennifer from any of the books that she has written or from the consultancy work that she has done with schools around the world. Jennifer is going to share some of her tips, tricks, research, and thinking around ways that we can more effectively engage in the conversation our schools so desperately need us to put at the forefront. So my name is Jennifer Abrams. I am a communications consultant. I am a former high school English teacher. I uh, have a website, uh, www.jenniferabrams.com. I'm now an author of four books. One in 2009 uh, was called Having Hard Conversations. Um, my last book in 2018 was Swimming in the Deep End, and I'm working on a new one, literally right now as I'm talking to you. I'm at the computer, um, kind of pulling my hair out. Um, my pronouns are she, hers, and her. I'm not usually asked that question, so I very much appreciate that. Um, I am... Uh, I'm sheltering in place solo. I have two nephews, no pets, and I am straight, no boyfriend at the moment, but always interested in a good cup of coffee or a cocktail with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about it. Great. I, I appreciate, I appreciate the, the profile. And I want to go back to you talking about the books that you have written. And specifically, I was wondering if we could go back to having hard conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and if you might identify any of the crucial moments that sort of planted oh. that initial seed in your mind of you thinking, I need to write the book. I need to get this book out there into the universe. I, yeah, I'm, it was 2009 that it got published, but the, um, the book's impetus, I think, was much, much earlier. I uh, left the classroom after a decade, and um, I started in, in 1998, and I was a new teacher coach. And as I say in my workshops, um, I use a quote from, I think it's Terry Pierce, because this is how it really applied to me. Uh, and it's kind of a funny quote, but it, and I'm not, well, I'll say it. Um, some of us really want to be, what is it, um, matadors, um, only to find ourselves in the ring with 2,000 pounds of bull bearing down on them and then discover what we really wanted was to wear tight pants and hear the crowd roar. And I got into coaching thinking that people were going to applaud me. I don't know. It was really arrogant. I thought I was going to be, you know, wearing tight pants and hear the crowd roar. And what I just determined at that moment, and that was in 98, was that I had a credential in how to teach students the subject of English. And I didn't have a credential in how to talk effectively to adults and that my entire life had been talking to people under the age of 18 
because I started teaching when I was 21 or 22. So I was, I was really not ready for like coaching and mentoring. So I get into that work and I study that. And then all of a sudden I'm now working with the adults in the system and I see things that I really feel are not okay. That I ultimately wrote in the book, I saw things that were educationally and professionally unsound. I saw things that were physically unsafe and I saw things that were emotionally damaging. And in my coaching background, I didn't have any skill set for that. So how do you have a hard conversation? I was raised in Minnesota. So I was raised to be Minnesota nice. And I had sort of a family that was kind of like, if you couldn't say anything nice, don't say anything. So I have like no background in speaking up around what matters. I have no skill set in how to do that with adults. And I kept looking and there was no work in education that was I that was about how to speak up around what mattered, which I thought was sort of difficult or hard. And I had to go out into corporate um, to do it, or I had to read books about how to deal with a difficult employee or a difficult parent. And I thought to myself, no, that's not what I'm talking about. The other person isn't wrong per se. I mean, I think that they are not doing what's right, but they're not the, they're not difficult. They just, we just need to have real strong dialogue about what we stand for. And so I wrote myself a workbook and it was over a number of years that I wrote it. And then it came out in 2009. And so now I giggle that people remember that book. And I'm like, that was 11 years ago. It's like, I've done so much since then, but that is still such a hard thing for all of us to do. So that's what the impetus was. I just didn't know how to do it. So I wrote myself a workbook on it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I think it still resonates with people oh, because yeah. it is something that we are still learning. And, you know, I love that you mentioned being from Minnesota. I am originally from New Jersey and we sort of have the opposite <laughs> reputation. Yes. But yes. I would say, you know, as a born and bred Jersey girl, I have also been in those situations where, you know, you, you see something incredibly problematic, but they're has been either a barrier that I have felt or perceived that has prevented me from, from speaking out. And I, I do think it's, it's something that you really need to sort of, as you did with years of learning, really, really sort of dig deeply into because we don't often get the opportunity to rehearse it. And I'm wondering actually in those years of research, and I know, as you said, this is going back a little while, do you remember anything in the, in the research or any of the thinking that you were doing as, as part of that writing process that surprised you or, you know, if you were kind of going to pinpoint one aha moment? I, um, I distinctly remember Bob Garmston who wrote Cognitive Coaching and has continued to be a friend and a, a mentor to me. He co-wrote it with Art Costa, I should say, that I remember being... I remember being, I went up and I was, I was, what was it, um, in front of everybody. I was doing a demo coaching with him and he was coaching me and I was cranky and I was like, this is so wrong and I, th I have a judgment about this. And he was, you know, working with me on a problem. And he said, why do you have to give up your judgment? 
and I just remember think I just remember started crying. I started crying. He was like, it isn't that what you want to say might be incorrect. It's about how you might want to say it that you might want to work on. You don't have to let go of something that you think is, is, you know, the correct way of doing it. The question is, how can you say it in a human, and I created this, I'm not giving this credit to Bob. How can I say it in a humane and growth producing way? And I thought about that. I thought, you know, it, that's what really struck me. That was what would the learning was. We can, uh, we can hold on to beliefs or values. We can hold on to what we've agreed is professionally sound or educationally correct, or we can all have an agreement about what is emotionally damaging. And I think that's fine. We really have to, we have to hold our, we have to have a, a floor upon which that we stand, right? The question is, how do we say it? Um, and that's what I kept struggling with because I just immediately went to the ceiling. I was just angry about it or I got aggressive about it. And then a colleague of mine said to me, this was Edmundo Norte, do you, you, do you wanna be right or do you wanna be effective? And I was like, dang. So, Darren, I was right. The question was, how could I be more effective? And that's really where I wrote the book so I could be more humane and growth producing. And I, you know, I, I think that skill set obviously is valuable in so many different contexts. And of course, this summer series for this podcast is specifically looking at, you know, really kind of switching from just thinking about this is going to be a, a hard or unbearable situation to one that is necessary because if we're doing LGBTQ plus advocacy work, um, you know, I, I have been that queer identifying teacher who did spend years not speaking up because in my mind it just seemed too hard or as you said, you know, there's that emotional, um, the emotional stakes feel really high and you, you know, you sort of wonder, is it going to be okay to have that emotional response, you know, or not, or how can I learn, as you say, to perhaps both be right and effective. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm, I'm wondering because I, so many people were endorsing the work that you do as a communications consultant. And I'm wondering what have you identified as some of those core barrier barriers for mm -hmm. us to be able to navigate hard conversations? Yeah. So, I, uh, Yep. I, I thank you. I, um, I, I've been listening to your podcast. <laughs> thank you. Um, and so I follow it. Um, and I follow Joel and Ange and, and I so appreciate their shout out. Um, I think, and they work, uh, they're from different contexts. They work in different contexts. I, you know, live in California. I'm talking to you and I, you're based in Canada and they're in Asia. It doesn't matter where we are, we all have tensions and hesitations and barriers. And I talk about sort of just acknowledging those at the very beginning of, of my workshop, uh, that it doesn't matter where it is, but that where we are, that we have uh, hesitations and then I reframe them as competing commitments. And Bob Keegan and Lisa Lasko Leahy from Harvard did a, wrote a great book, one of a few that they've written, um, called How the Way We Talk Can Change the Way We Work. And they talk about self-talk 
which are really those barriers. And I frame them, I take from them the idea that they are competing commitments, that they're tensions that we have to really take a look at. We all want to be liked. Um, people really do want to belong and feel included, and they fear that if they speak up, they won't be included. They fear for uh, their safety sometimes, that they're going to get yelled at or get fired. They they, they they like their comfort. I always laugh. They're leaving next year anyway. Let's just, mm -hmm. just wait it out, you know, mm -hmm. kind of a thing. Or... I'm a perfectionist. If I do it and it's bumpy and it's, it's awkward and I don't use the right words, then I won't feel like I got an A. Um, those are all commitments that are internal. You want to be um, loved. You want to feel comfortable. You want to be, but they're competing with what we need to say. And can we look at those tensions and barriers as not set in stone, but as something that we can look at from the balcony and say, yeah, I, I feel that way. You're absolutely right. Now, how can I sit with that and learn how to be more strategic and learn how to be more um, sort of conscientious about how to say things? So can I hold my discomfort and move forward? And, um, it is the funeral of John Lewis today here in the States. Uh, I talk about him in my work a lot um, because he would say, we have to get into trouble, necessary trouble. And so what he would speak to is the holding of both the cognitive and the affective. It is gonna be troubling. There's no doubt about that. We are gonna have barriers and internal tensions and worries. But do we still need to say what we need to say no matter what? Is it necessary? So it's never that we're going to let go of these. It's never that they're going to go away. It's just, can we do what we need to do and hold them both? And so I never, I just am like, oh, this is really going to be uncomfortable. Oh, well, <laughs> too bad. Moving on, you know. And so I'm building up my bandwidth to sit with discomfort, I think. And yeah, that you know, I love that phrase, the, the bandwidth of discomfort, because definitely something that's come out of this series is everyone seems to be reflecting on, you know, early in my career, my bandwidth was, you know, very limited. And then as I mature a little bit or get more confident and competent in my career, being able to do that, um, you know, almost organically becomes easier with time and practice. And I'm wondering for the person who's listening and thinking, I want to get better at this and I don't necessarily want it to just be over, you know, five or 10 years. And they're thinking, what can I start doing today that might make a difference mm -hmm. a year from now? Um, you know, I realize I'm asking you for kind of like a, a secret potion, but if you were going to recommend something to almost expedite um, increasing your bandwidth, do you have a recommendation? Uh, two things, I guess. Um, one is verbal and one is nonverbal. How's that? Great. So uh, let's start with the nonverbal. If you know you're going into a, a place where you're going to want to speak up, you anticipate that you're going to want to advocate for something, that, that whatever's on the agenda is going to be uh, something that you're going to be like, I'm feeling anxious about it, or I'm already feeling angry about it, or whatever. 
do what Amy Cuddy always shares. Uh, Amy Cuddy is a uh, Harvard Business School professor and a psychologist. And she created, or she, she didn't create, but she did research on something called the power pose, right? So not during the moments, but prior to the moments, stand for two minutes in a toilet stall or in a hallway or in your classroom as Wonder Woman. Or if you do not want to uh, identify with Wonder Woman and you prefer Superman, go for that. Same, same. Two solid minutes, her research says, actually will lower your cortisol and increase your testosterone. Now, it's been refuted, or it was actually uh, reviewed uh, in the New York Times a couple years after she put it out there as maybe the research wasn't exactly right. I personally think it works beautifully. That if you stand like Wonder Woman for two minutes, it'll actually open up your lungs and it opens up your chest and it opens up your, um, your throat. And I'm from California, so your fourth chakra, it'll open up, sorry, your fifth chakra, it'll open up your heart, your, your fourth chakra. And it kind of just sort of opens you up. Then do not go in. Uh, with your arms like that, or you're going to look too arrogant. Um, but I think it'll just, it keeps you from being too small. And I think for some reason that'll help. So going into meetings that you might find uncomfortable after you do that. Okay. So that's a nonverbal. I think a verbal one is in your first couple of years of developing this, or you're just trying it out. And it doesn't mean that you have to be a 22-year-old versus a 62-year-old, but it's just in the first years of, of wanting to speak up. Try a sentence. Don't think it's that much bigger. In fact, I'll give you a word. I'll give you a word or a sentence. I talk about the seize the moment sentences. Like somebody says something that you find really not appropriate or in uncomfortable or against a certain type of kid or a, a particular group or a parent community, you could say, you know, I, I, that makes me uncomfortable. That, that was a generalization that make me, makes me uncomfortable. Or I really don't agree with that. <laughs> or uh, that's, that's not okay. And, and to be able to even just speak up like that more than you have, I think is great because people are like, oh my gosh, I have to bring like a script in and, and I'm going to have to like laminate these things and put it on a lanyard and hold it, you know, with me. It, I, even if you just say, wow, yeah, mm, I don't think so. Or as my friend Letitia, who I will honor at this point, um, she just retired she said, if you can't say anything else, say, ouch, mm. that's it. And so I'm not suggesting that hard conversations have to be like, I'm documenting for three months, nine, nine specific uh, pieces of evidence as to which, you know, and, and I'm going to have to, you know, bring all of this. You could just start just saying, eh, I don't agree with that. You could just build up your ability to go, oh, I, do, do you think that? Say more. You know, I mean, it's really, it's about, um, it's about just saying things in the moment when you think things are educational or professionally unsound, physically unsafe or emotionally damaging. So those are my two things to start. Then we can get very complicated and very nuanced, but 
for the for the most part, that's that's a good way to begin. I love that, and it it reminds me of you know a question that sometimes I use when I'm when I'm working with different schools in sort of getting at you know is you know of course a lot of schools use this whole oh it's a safe space or you know we don't have homophobia or transphobia or sexism or racism here because uh, people, people would tell us you know sometimes I hear that whole like no 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 it's not an issue and um, so one of the questions that I ask sometimes is you know how often in a meeting might you even hear someone say I, I'm not sure about that or I disagree because I, I do think this myth of schools being um you know spaces where people can speak up and do speak up all the time um it, you know I, I think it's easy to have this tunnel vision and think sure everybody feels like if there's an issue they can speak up versus the reality that um i just often I, i've not experienced that to be the truth yeah um so that's you know i really love that it's just sometimes it is as simple as saying i'm not sure about that or i disagree with it um I think that if somebody, somebody actually taught me to do that with a gentleman named Rick DeFore. So Rick DeFore started uh, the PLC movement, okay? So he's like in his 60s, he's passed away since, since then. But I was like, if anybody could actually handle me pushing against something, it would be him because he has seen a lot of stuff and you've got to have people push you and prod you for you to develop. I, I have an editor currently who said, you know, send me your best and then I'm going to push and poke at it. It isn't because I'm trying to make you wrong. It's because I want to actually make it better. And I think it's about making us better. So I remember, I remember like standing up with 500 people in a room and saying, can I press you a bit on that point? And people just went, oh, you know, like, is this a space where you can actually ask people to, def you know, to, to, to kind of say more or maybe apologize or whatever? And he goes, sure. And I remember everybody looking at him and then looking at me, me like, how dare you say something to him? But, but then for him to be, to say, yeah, go ahead. Like, if we are adult enough and we're cognitive enough, this is a thing I've been talking about. I was just on with Hawaii in the last couple of days, a group of principals. We have to stay cognitive and not go effective. And I think that that's where people worry that they're going to, you know, remember I just said, like, I'm going to get too emotional. I'm, and we're, I'm going to say something mean, like, well, only an idiot would, or, or why do stupid people, you know, that's not, I'm not saying we shouldn't be passionate. That's not the effect I'm talking about. I'm talking about diminishing somebody, uh, saying something about their personality and not about the, the idea on the table. I think that we have to practice kind of talking about the ideas and not talking against an individual by doing exactly what for, I, 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 you can tell what uh, position I have. Uh, our, our administration here in the United States, I do not, <laughs> I'm not voting for it uh, again. Um, they, they go effective and they are not in the discussion and we need to have discussions. And that's what I, when I say humane and growth producing, we need to have debates. And so that's what I think 
people aren't doing in schools, as you mentioned, you go in, you know, does anybody have a safe space? Well, uh, a braver space or a safe space would be one where you'd say, can I press you on that? Can I ask you that? I don't agree with you on that, you know? And that's the stuff that'll actually get us to a better product. I agree completely. And I do think a lot of schools are reckoning with the yes. reality that they do want to do better in so many ways. And I, I think, you know, as you said, it's not going to happen unless more educators are upskilled in the art of having hard conversations or are given more rehearsal or opportunities yes. to, to sort of dig into that art of debate. You know, at this point, I would almost suggest that not training teachers to do that you know, almost constitutes malpractice. And I'm wondering, yes. you reflecting on all of the experiences that you've had as an author and working in person with educators and virtually, do you have a sense of whether or not schools are getting better at putting our communication capabilities out there on the forefront? You, uh, gosh, you're like a, if I asked you to ask me that in front of a bunch of other people, I'd say, thank you for being a plant in the audience. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't think so. And I'm going to tell you why I, and, and I'll agree with you as to why I think it's important. And, and I'm going to set, I'm going to set myself up for a, a little promo for the book I'm just writing right now. I, I think that we spend a significant and understandably significant amount of time in professional development working on our practice. Our, our instruction now uh, in the States, our distance learning abilities, um, now in the States um, working on, because we're reckoning here at least, uh, uh, and I assume everywhere, around uh, systemic racism and how it's impacting our schools. So we're looking at our instruction and our engagement and our work around supporting uh, black and brown students. Um, that's happening valuable, absolutely necessary, okay? That's about the classroom. What I also know is that if we're looking at Hattie's meta-analysis around collective efficacy, if we look at Breikenschneider's work on relational trust, if we look at Hargraves and O'Connor's work on a collaborative professionalism, we can't just focus on in the classroom discussions, we've got to focus on outside the classroom discussions. So the adult-to-adult -adult communication piece which normally, unfortunately, is only focused on when somebody is A, not a team player, or B, not really a good collaborative person, um, it's usually in the negative. We have to say, no, this is just something that we have to develop because this is actually essential. We've got the research that says this is important. If we talk more effectively together, we will increase our ability in the classroom to increase achievement, student well-being, create a better culture for all students, but we have to build up our own skill set. Sometimes they do things like a colleague of mine is doing like PLC 101, you know, like sort of the baseline, um, how we should work as a team kind of stuff. Establish norms, show up at a meeting, um, you know, uh, try to offer uh, clarifying questions and suggestions and, you know, really important bottom line skill sets. I think that we need to even be better at the development of the adults um, past just that, that 
foundational PLC 101. And I'm not going to call my book PLC 202. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I really think that we've got to think about five aspects. Um, we got to know ourselves and how that impacts our work. We've got to be able to suspend our certainty more um, and be able to sit in curiosity. We've got to take responsibility for our communications um, and our actions, not just getting the work done for the team, but like how we show up and believe, this is the fourth thing, that, that it's our responsibility to know how to work more interdependently. And then, yeah, it's gonna be really hard and it's gonna be painful because people are gonna push and prod us. Um, yay, because we gotta then build our resiliency. So that's what I'm working on right now is how can we in schools support not just the development of the students, but the development of the adults in order to actually affect the school more positively. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Well, and, you know, it's interesting, too, because my experience has been that educators are often way more resilient than they give themselves credit for. Um, and I mention that because I, I often hear people use this phrase of, uh, you know, I don't like conflict, uh, you know, especially when I, I've been working with people talking about just having a more LGBTQ plus inclusive curriculum, they realize, you know, if I even have that text, that book, that resource in the classroom, that might quote, ruffle feathers, I don't like doing that. And I'm guessing you've heard people use that kind of language too. So for that person who's listening and thinking, you know, I just, I am a person who avoids conflict at all costs. I'm never going to get better at this. Uh, you know, wh where do you start with, with that person? I think I would start with, tell me why, what's the scariest thing about conflict for you? I mean, I think I might I'm not trying to catastrophize, um, but I'm trying to explore where did they hear that conflict is so scary? Mm. You know, um, and have they seen places where they have experienced it? And what was the, what was the best part of that for them? And actually kind of move them into a, a space of pushing them them to the edge and saying, you know, what, what is the benefit of, of conflict? Where have you seen that to be okay? And, and where has it really helped you? You know, and I bet you anything, somebody's going to say, well, I, yeah, I mean, who knows? I was in a situation, I spoke up and it wasn't that great right now, but then I left and I felt better. I just, I want people to recognize exactly what you said, which is they're more resilient than they, than they imagine. And it's a good thing. Conflict is not. Affective conflict is not a good thing. Cognitive conflict is. And, and so I think it's maybe their understanding of what conflict could be. I also want people to understand that there will always be an edge. There will always be um, something to stretch them. And so it's a different thing. Affective, not so good. But I, somebody was actually calling cognitive conflict creative abrasion. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, it was a book I was looking at. I can't remember. His name is Tim Clark. And it was from Barrett Kohler. He called it creative abrasion. It's, it's okay. Cog you will survive conflict. Um, if, if you 
are in conflict that is going to push you to be better. I think it's the way that we've experienced it as yelling and diminishing and wounding. And I'm not discounting that. There is some terrible stuff going on out there where people are not debating in a, in a professional way. So I'm not discounting their experiences by in any means, by any means. But we can build up we can build up our ability to sit with it. We can build up our ability to do it more professionally. And I think it's better for all of us if we do. Uh, yeah, you know, that's interesting too, because I'm thinking about, <clears throat> you, you sort of describe one extreme. And I think on the other end of that spectrum is the team who lives and dies by their collaborative norms. And they almost misread it as a sense of, we have to be in alignment and agreement that, you know, the. The whole yeah. meaning behind having these is just so that everybody is always nodding their head yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm wondering, do you have any advice for those teams who they've sort of just put agreement up on the pedestal? Um, you know, are, are there any other questions or, or prompts that you that you might use with? Yeah, I, that's a great question. It's not about it. In one of the pieces that I haven't totally written yet, in the working interdependently. Uh, section, I think that we have to ask about how much have we uh, disagreed? Has anybody, who, what, what voice haven't we heard? What if uh, somebody, you know, what, hmm, how am I going to, um, what, what's missing here? Um, what if somebody disagreed with us? What would they say? You know what I mean? Like almost putting, putting a devil's advocate person into the room or, or somebody take that role uh, for us. Because I think we need a little, I, we need a little pushback. Uh, anybody want to play that today? Um, where, where have we not stretched ourselves? You know what I mean? Like almost sort of add a little add a little creative abrasion, you know what I mean? And so if you haven't done that, uh, you're not, you're actually not a great team. <laughs> That's a very interesting thing. I'm, I'm talking out loud. So thank you, Trisha, for, it's just the idea of saying yes all the time doesn't give you an A. And in fact, if all of the time you agree, all, you, you don't get an A. In fact, I'm already lowering your grade. <laughs> I'm lowering your grade. Somebody needs to ask a question, what about? Somebody needs to say, what's missing? Somebody needs to say, let me play devil's advocate. Do you know what I mean? And if you add those kinds of questions to your conversation and you can get into some disagreement you're, and then come to a solution, you're in a better place. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're a fan of Esther Perel or not, but I, I could listen to her speak yeah. for hours she's and hours. And cool. she's, uh, cool. she's, she's great. And I, I sort of steal her line. I can't remember exactly when she used it, but um, she's speaking to a couple. And I think this works well for teams too. And she just sort of says, you know, like, what is it that you've gotten really good at avoiding discussing. Yeah. And I think, you know, that totally plays out in team dynamics as well. Uh, we, we do become masters of, of avoiding. 
So, uh, you know, I, I think that there are probably a lot of teams who are listening to you speak and, and do recognize how important the work that you do is. So how do, how do schools go about bringing you in and what are the different ways actually that they can sort of leverage uh, the, the work that you've been doing? Mm, I want to actually comment and highlight actually some work that you and your team are doing <laughs> first, and then I'll highlight me. But that whole idea of what, what is uncomfortable that we haven't asked ourselves? Um, what are we avoiding? That your team at, at Juro Learning, I was just picking up something from you guys about kind of looking at stuff and where are we not paying attention? And so I think using some of your work, I, I just am already highlighting in my own work. So I want to thank you for that. Um, where can people find me? Well, um, people can find me at www.jenniferabrams.com. And they can see some video tapes of me there and listen to some podcasts, just like this wonderful one, um, to see if what I do uh, can, can help where they're at. If, if they are trying to develop their adults to be better adult selves, I'm kind of there. I am into the adult-to-adult -adult communication business. Um, and... People bring me in to talk to schools. They bring me in to talk to leadership teams um, about how can we help grow ourselves and help support the development of other adults. Hard conversations. Um, how can we work better collaboratively? Um, how can we uh, be better leaders and bring a team into the unknown? That's the swimming in the deep end stuff. Uh, so uh, communicating in challenging times. And I am one of those people that customizes and said, they, people say, hey, I think we need a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And they sort of just put together a menu and then they say, oh, and you need to do it on um, British time. So can you be up in the middle of the night? And I go, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I sort of, I, I modify because I'm really intrigued at how to help people find their voices around what matters. So I, I look forward to hearing from people. Uh, and the the book that is coming out soon, when is that going to be available and, uh, and where can people go to find it? Well well they're gonna they're gonna be able to find it on my website when I actually finish it. I am quote self-publishing it, but I'm doing it with Laura Lipton and Bruce Wellman's uh, uh, imprint miravia.com. So it'll be out with them as well. Um, so miravia.com two of my favorite people. They also do great work on mentoring um, and coaching. And, um, and on my website. And I'm going to guess by the end of this school year, maybe earlier, but I bet we'll, we'll get it out so people can start doing. I'm doing workshops on it now. Um, I'm doing a deep dive for the Association of International Schools in, in uh, Africa starting this fall. I'm doing bits and pieces of it in the spring. Um, with, I think, some people in uh, Asia, in uh, China. So, I, yeah, I'm willing to start it now. The book won't be complete, but, but I'm still playing with it. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to it. And, um, you know, I, thinking about the ways that we can sort of be allies within our community, the other thing I do is, you know, of course, you probably really appreciate when people buy your book, 
But something yeah. I've been trying to do, even if I've bought the book, is get in touch with my local library, check to see if they have it. If they don't, ask them to. Um, and I, I, I live on a, a teeny tiny island, so you'll appreciate this, that um, my, my wife and I moved here just about a year ago, and I've kind of become quick friends with the librarian. So I suggested some of your work. Uh, and they were so excited and they thanked me profusely for just sort of putting them on your radar. So you're a little bit of a, a local celebrity out ah! in the middle of nowhere. You, you quickly, you quickly um, just sort of brought, you have a few more fans. Your fan base on oh. Little Gabriel Island is growing very quickly. Thank you. I'm so glad. That's it. That is the most touching thing I've heard in a long time. <laughs> I will do a book reading when I can actually cross the borders and we're not wearing masks and I will come to your island and we will have a little reading at the library. Oh, you'd, you'd love it. I'd yeah, love that it. Would, that would be great. It's a, <laughs> it's a gorgeous little place. I'd love that. Thank you. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for giving up your, your time and uh, yep, for, for educators who are listening, reach out, bring Jennifer Abrams into your school, bring her books into your school. Uh, you know, we all really need these hard, necessary conversations for this year coming. Thanks, Thank Jennifer. You. Thank you.